welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Pat Kelly. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome to episode 27, High Action listeners. I'm John Story. Thanks for joining us here today. And we've got my buddies, Will and Perry. Will, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful morning. Uh, we do our discussions on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, should we give them a little background on how, how we do these discussions before you know, the interview? That's a great idea. Why don't you tell them, Will? So uh, every Monday morning, at least Monday morning, West Coast time, mm-hmm. everything's everything's different in Brooklyn. Uh, we, we get together and we discuss the episode that that is going to be released. And this episode was actually recorded, I believe, about a month ago or so, maybe a little more. Longer. Yeah. 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 So I'm doing great. I love Pat Kelly. Oh man. Yeah. It's great. You know, and I mean, you getting to work with Pat a little bit later on past where Perry and I did, you know, and I mean, Perry, it wasn't it fun to get to just kind of shoot the breeze with Pat a little bit. I mean, gosh, the memories, man, we've got with this guy. <laughs> yeah. Pat Kelly, incredible guitar player, um, you know, tremendous career, LA studio cat, mm-hmm. sideman, you know, burning jazz guitarist, great tone. Yeah. Uh, I think above all though, he's probably just a, a great role model for us, you know, cause we knew him when we were 17, 18 for me, even before that, I think I was 16 when I met him, mm-hmm. uh, just encouraging, he was encouraging me to come to SC and yeah, he's a, you know, great, great guy to kind of model yourself after if you're trying to make a career as a jazz guitar player. So true. And, uh, you know, he, Pat has in common with all three of us, you know, he, where he came from, like he came from Oklahoma and we all kind of come yeah. from different places and moved to Southern California as yeah. listeners are going to find actually without giving a lot away, you know, he actually didn't quite move to LA first. He moved somewhere nearby in Southern California, but we all came down here to sort of pursue this, this sort of career, a little bit knowing of what it was about, but also a little bit of like just seeing what's going to happen. Um, you know, like the master classes that he attended when he was younger that kind of drew him closer to LA. Um, Perry, what's what, you know, what's one thing about Pat's versatility um, that really kind of like you, you took away studying a little bit with him at, at USC. Cause I, I know we talk a lot about that and you met, just mentioned that how versatile he is. Um, did that inspire you to want to get some other tones beyond just, just our usual jazz tone that we, that we all play with? Yeah, I think so. Um, although kind of around the time that I was getting to know him, he was really focused on jazz, you know, on playing tunes and, and having a swinging feel and like a really kind of thick tone. Mm-hmm. So those were the things that I was more focused on his playing with. You know, he's a real lyrical player. Yeah. Um, and, and then you learn about him and you go, wow, you played with Benson, you right. know, <laughs> like you had an incredible career as a studio musician in LA. You were on all these TV shows. You've been a teacher, you know, f- at SC for a lot of years. So uh, yeah, he's kind of an unassuming character in that respect. Right. Uh, but this is a really fun episode. We've had a lot of good memories with Pat, so it felt like just you know talking to a relative of ours or something. It was it was cool. Yeah, 
Exactly. And, you know, uh, Will, I'm always curious, like you going to Long Beach State, um, did you feel like there was a little bit of a camaraderie with some of the guitar students and the and Tom and Ron? Um, you know, we talk a lot about how Pat Kelly and Frank and all of all those guys, we had like this guitar club at USC. Yeah. I'm curious what your experience uh, was at Long Beach, you know? Yeah. So, so Ron Este was my teacher and the other teacher who I never did study with, but I'm good friends with Mike Higgins, mm-hmm. who's a great studio guy, very versatile type of guy. Um, it was, it was a smaller guitar scene, you know, I mean, compared to USC just in numbers and, and I mean the, um, the amount of faculty, of course, but, um, me personally, my experience was, I was fortunate that I had countless opportunities to play. Mm-hmm. I was just constantly playing and um and a teacher like ron actually didn't push a lot of agenda on me he he really kind of allowed me to be me while while giving some drops of advice like you should learn you know 500 great american songbook tunes this year you know things like that yeah so um i think uh the camaraderie might not have been as consistent and high in numbers as sc from what i hear but I mean, me as a guitar player, I certainly got a lot, of, a lot of experience out of it. Yeah, well, you know, I think there's again across the board. Well, one thing we're learning about on the High Action Podcast with our Southern California guitarists is this overall camaraderie, this huge guitar scene that we're all a part of here. Yeah. And there's these kind of microclimates where we've got a little bit of a thing going at Long Beach, a little bit of a thing at USC, the GIT or Musicians Institute, that kind of hangs. So I'm excited to get into this interview today. So let's dive right in. What do you guys say? Episode 27 of the High Action Podcast with our guest, Pat Kelly. Thanks so much, Pat, for joining us for High Action, and we're already rolling, so we're just going to keep going here. But, man, yeah, as as Perry said, it's an honor to have you here, man. You know, when we started doing this concept of the podcast, I mean, your name (laughs) came out before we even decided what we were going to do on the podcast. (laughs) All right, we're going to do a podcast. All right, we're going to get Pat Kelly, you know, and then we're... (laughs) Yeah, man. And you're in LA along with Will and I, and, and then Perry being out in New York. So it's, it's a fun time for us to connect with players like this. And so we're, we're stoked to, to get you on here. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about growing up in Oklahoma and, uh, and what it was like early on, the earliest memories you have with the guitar being that your dad encouraged you to play at such an early age. I know you've played for, a, for your whole life pretty much at yeah. this point. Yeah, I have played an awful lot of years now. It's, it's uh, kind of blowing my mind that I'm 68 years old now and started playing when I'm like four. And I, there's hardly been a day that I haven't played the guitar uh, in wow. you know, 65 years almost or 60 years. Uh, I, my dad gave me a ukulele first. I, he played the guitar, not not for a living, but he would have you know a couple of friends come over and jam and all that sort of stuff. So that's really where my first interest came from. It was hearing him. He sang, pretty good singer, and uh, and all that. And there was another friend of his named Fred Daniel that I'm still in touch with. He's over 90 years old now and, and still totally into the guitar thing. And he was he was more the guitar for me. Uh, that he had that he bought you know, in 1935 for like 50 cents. It was a little acoustic guitar that, and he put nylon strings on it, shaved the bridge down, actually made it quite playable. And uh, so when I was about, I guess five or six, I started 
playing that thing. And that thing is in, in the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame now. I got inducted into there back in uh, uh, 2003, I think it was, right around that time. And uh, so I, that's in a glass case down there. I just donated it to them. And uh, so, you know, I heard that that's how I really got started. But it was a great place growing up. You know, I was in my first band, started my first band when I was in sixth grade. We were playing uh, venture songs and things like that, which were actually quite cool to learn how to play with. They weren't that hard to play, and, and they were popular instrumental songs that kind of don't exist now. So that was that was kind of a cool thing. And then, uh, you know, it went on from there, just learning, you know, popular things. I started a more serious band when I was in eighth grade called Pat and the Panthers, and it actually could have probably been a, a real kid hit band if we'd been in California because it was – you know, four or five guys, five good looking guys that could all sing and play. And, you know, for a kid band, it was it was cool, you know. So but that, you know, went on to uh, lead to this and that. And and, and then I, I played in a soul band after that. When I left that, I was only 16. All the rest of the guys were out of high school. And that was a real big education for my studio playing, uh, just learning all those Motown and James Brown tunes and stuff like that, you know, as a teenager and. And at that same time, I was studying with, uh, I'd had a couple other teachers and already had been learning to read because I had a teacher uh, outside of my dad when I started when I was eight that started me in the Mel Bay stuff. And and I went through like four of those books, you know. I remember I remember Corey coming to USC when he was working for, Corey Christiansen, when he was working for Mel Bay and saying, whenever anybody ordered the seventh book, the bell would ring. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> nobody ever went that, went that far in him. But anyway, I did I did that. So I, I you know, a reading thing, but I was going to say in high school, and I was taking lessons from Eldon Shamblin, uh, quite well-known guitarist, uh, you know, from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. And all that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of that music there, but I never studied, uh, any Western swing with Eldon. I was already into Wes and Howard Roberts and Johnny Smith and, and, uh, you know, all the Joe pass, all the jazz guys. And, and so I just, I work almost exclusively with Eldon on chord melody playing or solo guitar playing, you know, which is something that's still incredibly important to me today. And, and I'm even, at this point in my life, making that almost my main fo focus now. So, so it was a good, good growing up thing. In the last, uh, the last six months that I was in Tulsa, this kind of doesn't exist for a lot of the younger guys now. The last six months I was there, played six nights a week at a supper club a j with a jazz group. I had an L five then that I could uh, fifty three L five, but unfortunately don't have anymore. But anyway, uh, I was playing that in a in a supper club uh, five hours a night six nights a week for six months the last six months i was there i mean those kind of gigs existed so by the time i moved to california i already played you know hundreds and hundreds of gigs as a young guy that's kind of a difference between your generation and our generation we had to kind of create those opportunities for ourselves it's cool to hear that you had those opportunities before you came out to la so what year was that that you graduated from school in tulsa in college right because you studied music well, in tulsa yeah well you know i had before moving to california i a couple of things really moved me one was uh in 1970 or 71, whichever one it was, I drove to California my first trip to attend the Howard Roberts uh, five-day-long seminar. This was before he started uh, GIT or any of that stuff, or the Musicians Institute. And that was just, I mean, all I could think about was moving uh, 
just going ahead and getting out here and getting into it uh, at, at that time. The following summer, I drove up to uh, Denver and attended a five-day-long Johnny Smith seminar. Was that the same summit that Ron Ron was at? Wasn't Ron telling us about this thing? Oh, you mean like Howard, Howard Roberts' uh, seminar, you mean? Yeah, I wonder. That sort of thing. He, very, he may have been there uh, at, at one of those because Howard did that uh, – I'm not sure how many times he, I think he did that for at least a couple of summers or more. I'm not quite sure. I think Lee Rittenauer and John Goo, I believe, were there. I wow. heard also, I didn't know them at that time or anything. So I wouldn't, have, I've only heard that, you know, because there, there were probably like a few other guitar players that I might know that, that were there that, that I just funny. don't know. But, but that was great. Oh, what I was saying, yeah, about, I remember now, is that I didn't finish uh, TU. I, and after I had a semester left, I said, I, I, I'm too anxious to play. I moved to California, didn't finish my degree. Uh, and uh, what I, I moved to San Diego first when I first moved here. And, you know, that's kind of a long story without going into all that. But I, I was with a high school sweetheart that later passed away and we're no longer, you know, that's, that's not happening anymore. But I moved there because she was finishing her school and I said, okay, get my feet in not far from, from, uh, uh, LA, but it turned out to just be amazing uh, time being there because that was probably my greatest growth spirit. Uh, I stayed there about four years because things went so well there. Uh, I've just been so unbelievably lucky. I mean, I moved there. I had $800 to my name. I didn't grow up with money. I drove with my dog and my stuff and a little trailer by myself out to, to San Diego and got a, got a duplex, went out immediately. I was like a month from being 21 years old. I'm still only 20 years old at this time. And uh, so I went out and immediately started trying to hear some bands. Uh, man, the first night, this guy said, oh, the guy over to Hilton is auditioning guitar players. Uh, his guitar player is leaving. I go over there like the second day I've moved to California. I get the gig and start like two weeks later at a gig just five nights a week at the Hilton over there. And uh, and I stayed there for uh, with doing that for a little while, for about three months till I decided to start my own band down there. And uh, a couple of guys came out from Oklahoma to play. We, we did that. I eventually dropped out of that because there was a lot of recording work down there. And I, I fell into being the guy, the main guy. I was doing almost all the recording work down there. They did lots of jingles That's mo and, and industrial films, maybe once in a while, some kind of a little record or something. But it's mostly real, a couple of two or three companies that were real busy with library music, jingles and stuff like that. Where we were doing, uh, I was doing sessions you know, several days a week, you know, almost sometimes on that, on that kind of stuff. So I kind of dropped out of doing a, a lot of the club stuff at that time. And it gave me, gave me a lot of experience before I moved up to, up to LA. Right. Um, and I, I imagine you, were your parents really encouraging of you to come out to California because they saw your talents, especially your dad and stuff. And it must've been exciting for them to see you come out and like get work right away. Yeah. I, I've really, I live my dad's dream and uh yeah they they couldn't have been more supportive really i mean although i cannot imagine that happening now to me my daughter driving away at, you know across the country you know but they'd always expected it and they yeah it couldn't have been more encouraging i think they would have been really disappointed if i hadn't continued the music because i mean my passion my whole life was right. uh, 
uh, you know, all my friends can say, yeah, he came in, he would come in from playing because he wanted to practice, you know, right. do it when I was a kid, you know, stuff because I enjoy doing it. You know, you got to like to have the instrument in your hands, as you guys know, mm-hmm. you, would, you wouldn't be as good as you are if you didn't really enjoy <laughs> Well, and also like, you know, there's this feeling, there's this, there's this feeling we have when we're young of wanting to become stars or wanting to become like guitar players that people know about and talk about. And then you go to school or you move to a city and you start working and then you're grateful you've got work and you're like, wow, it feels great to have a teaching job. It feels great to have this. And we get settled into that. And then this becomes a vortex. And you're like, in your case, you must have, you were doing jingle work, you're doing commercial music work in San Diego, but you must have still felt this desire to actually move to LA and be in LA, right? Yeah, you know, you know, I feel like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta go up there. And, and I actually, for, you know, for quite a while, uh, in the transition, I would drive down to San Diego and do some of the sessions and stuff still, uh, cause it was really easy at that time to drive back and forth. The traffic was such that you could actually do it, you know? And, uh, get down there but when i moved up to la i mean it i had almost a similar thing i mean i i've been probably one of the luckiest people ever you know i mean as soon as i came to la i had a a drummer friend that said oh ronnie laws is auditioning guitar players this is like the first week i'm in la and i go over there and i get the gig and I'm at Carnegie Hall three weeks later with him. And on the road, that that just launched, that opened up so much stuff because when I'd go out to the baked potato or any place like that, people knew I was playing with Ronnie Laws. They'd say, oh, he must be funky, you know? I mean, it's- You set this up really well, Pat. We should take a listen to Peaceful Stream. Okay, all right. And, and let me tell you, this is off a, uh, an album that we, we got signed to MCA Records. I think this came out what, about 1978 or 9, 79, yeah. And this was... Uh, kind of Ronnie's band at the time, but we made a another, he made a deal like with the band. So we kind of featured him on it too. But uh, anyway, so this was like, yeah, going back a few years. Cool. Here we go. one of these guys that just you kill it in all these styles pat i mean you're such a great straight ahead player as our listeners are going to find out too but like it's just your tone is so burning were you playing on mainly just a couple of instruments at that time like or did you had did you save up a lot of the money you were earning and buy as many instruments as possible because you talked to a lot of guys back then about having to buy rack units and big amps and lots of guitars oh my god i've gone through like so much money and stuff on that stuff it's unbelievable the uh, uh that guitar i think i can 
remember. Sometimes I forget what guitar I played on some stuff, but I'm pretty sure that's the 335 that I still have. It's a 63 335, and I, I got that, acquired that when I was in San Diego. So I already had that guitar, and I'm almost certain that's what I played on that, and I can't remember what amp. I, I know back in those days I had a couple of Music Man amps and a couple of other things, and uh, but... We definitely went through the racks. To, oh my gosh! I, I I had the Bradshaw gigantic, you know, refrigerator racks and all kinds, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, I'm back to, you know, more simple setup now. I just I love good amps and and all that. So. Well, it's it's all changed too. I mean, this whole digital world that we're in, you can have so many sounds in your computer. And back then, you had to buy the actual stuff. I mean, I remember even Richard Smith talking at USC about guys having refrigerator size rack oh, yeah. units in their apartment and no yeah. furniture. You'd walk into guitar players' <laughs> apartments and all there would be would be rack units and literally nothing else in the apartment, you know. <laughs> well, a lot of t a lot of times back in in those days, the uh, the rack would live over at the Carnage Company a right. lot of times, you know, right. had, you know, because I wasn't uh, maybe in the first days recording as much at home as as I am now. So yeah, well, it must have been so excited to be a part of that. So the name was the name of the band called Pressure, or was it? Yeah, yeah, he called it that. Roddy had a, an album called Pressure Sensitive I, that was, uh, I think, his first album. It was a really big record at the time. I mean, he's one of the biggest artists in that genre. That's why he played a room like Carnegie Hall and in concert halls at that time you know he was pretty big then um but so he just decided to call the group pressure i guess it sort of had some relation to what people knew that name of that album and it said featuring ronnie laws i played on some of ronnie's records too a number of ronnie's records and uh, and uh, actually the whole laws family i almost feel <laughs> i almost felt like i was part of the family there for a minute hubert became a really good friend i don't know if, uh, because of knowing ronnie all of a sudden i'm playing with hubert too and uh, you might know i didn't put that uh send you this recording but uh the first song i ever had recorded on a major album it was on columbia records and hubert laws was opening cut my song called the baron and that only happened because uh, just sort of being lucky and prepared. I was already writing a lot of songs, but um, I, we were rehearsing at SIR to record. I was going to play on his album, so we had a, on Hubert's record, so we had a rehearsal, and he, he just happened to say something, I need another song. I said, hmm, I just happened to have one in my case here. I <laughs> the music to it, and wow. he loved it. It ended up being the first song on the, on the, on the record. So uh, and I, toured, I toured with Hubert. I mean, God, the band we had with Hubert was amazing, too. We went to the Philippines, all kinds of different places. I mean, we had, like, Nathan East on bass, Ndugu on drums, Bobby Lyle on piano, uh, Woody Murray, Onaji Woody Murray on vibes. And it was, yeah, it was, that was a killer band. Was your sights at that time set on touring extensively with these kinds of bands, or were you guys more interested in just cutting as many records as possible because it was the heyday of the record industry in that sense, right? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I sometimes just make decisions as things come along, you know. I mean, it's uh, it kind of worked hand in hand because working with some of those guys like that, they would, you know, have us on the records as well. Uh, I know there's a lot of stories of uh, guys that never work on the records and just, you know, tour too. And, and there's a lot of there were a lot of times when some guys didn't want to go on the road because they're afraid they'd drop out of the studio scene and whatever. I mean, I always really liked playing also. So live playing was 
was a lot of fun. So, I mean, obviously that, that opened up a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah. And, and that now I'm remembering also the question along these lines too, because this is such an interesting time. I'm, I'm super curious to talk to you about it today, Pat, the late seventies, early eighties, kind of what it was like to really be a, a the consummate studio jazz, jazz guitarist in LA. Were you also familiar with or friends with like studio execs and producers and engineers? Was the scene that small or were as a, as a musician, was your community pretty much these musicians that you were recording with? Cause I imagine, back then walking in the studio like going over to what is now Henson but back then was A&M and seeing Herb Alpert and knowing him and knowing the the people in the office and so like if your song got put on a record it would be that easy for them to approve it because they knew guys like you who were like these these session guys mm. uh, well boy a song like that one on Hubert's record I don't think he needed any body but himself probably to say this is on the record you know uh, yeah I just, I guess some, well, you, I got to know some engineers for sure, you know, and learn a lot from engineers paying attention to how they mic acoustic guitars and, uh, and amps and everything else. And, uh, and some of the uh, producers too, and not everything was records. You know, there were a lot of sessions that are, uh, I did a lot of jingles too, even here in LA, it was real busy at one time with, and when I first moved here, I mean, every jingle, every kind of session didn't matter what kind of session it was it would be a live rhythm section i mean it's the drummer and bass player there i mean it was before uh, early on it was before midi and all all that stuff so it would always be you know there were a whole lot of things going on there's just so many more sessions that uh, yeah do you feel like that the union was a lot more powerful back then too in la like in terms of all the work that you were doing or because i'm curious huh. about that as well well, they might have had a little more clout because there was so much more going on. Uh, I mean, I never felt like uh, the union was very helpful in terms of just actually getting you work or anything like that. You know, you kind of have to, as you guys probably know, you have to kind of do that on your own. There are a lot of good things about it. I mean, I'm collecting a musician's pension now. So, I mean, to be in the L.A. Uh, area and be able to do that it's pretty pretty awesome you know and that may be, not be as easy to do for the young guys because there's not as many union sessions you have to work so many sessions i had some steady television shows and things like that also which you know gave me a lot of work you know i, I was the guitar player in the merv griffin show for the last five years that that was on and i re that show i mean i followed herb ellis jim hall and mundell Lowe into that band you know they i always felt bad about that man because i love mundell low and i always felt like shut you know i mean they're they're like getting some younger guys now <laughs> in the group you know try to do some other things you know and mundell was so such a heavy uh player and everything right and this was so this is 83 84 85 yeah so it's like the 80s yeah i might say before one one thing that was extremely important i think to my career and probably all the rest of the guys in this band too and this was back you know at the time when i was uh more in the ronnie laws uh, early or late 70s and early early 80s to probably going to about 82 but we had a band called the dave boroff band that played at a place called the flying jib in encino and it was the most awesome band it it you had Vinnie Caliuta on drums, Neil Steubenhaus on bass, Barnaby Finch on piano, Michael Fisher on percussion, Dave Boroff on sax. We're all young hotshots here in town. Vinnie already was the, as monstrous as he is now. He was then at, 
in his tw- early twenties, you know, and and w- the crowds. We we started off one night a week there, and and I also so I wrote at least half of the music for that band, or if not more. And Dave Boroff wrote uh, a lot of it too, and one or two other guys wrote maybe one or two songs, but. Uh, that was a chance to just crank out tunes, but there's so many people came in there. I mean, every night it would be like, you know, Jay Graydon, Bill Champlin, Tommy LaPuma, Stevie Wonder, Al Jarreau, all, I mean, the, the people that came in, it really, it's hard to get heard sometimes. And that's a problem with people moving. It was such a lucky situation to be in a band that good where you sound your best probably Somebody just emailed me the other day and said, the first time I heard you was at the Flying Jib and my mind was blown. And this, <laughs> I just got that a couple of days ago, you know. So, so, so that, that really opened up things were, you know, for us to meet those producers and just all these different people. I mean, you know, for everybody, that band would have ended up being one of the main kind of fusion. We were loud, real loud in fusion, kind of heavy, you know. <laughs> I played a lot of overdrive guitar in that group. But uh, that would have been one of the, bands that would have really done it there had not everybody gotten so busy in that group all of a sudden neil one of the busiest studio bass players of all time michael fisher playing every you know uh movie date there is uh vinnie caliuta of course uh so it just all sort of splintered because everybody was so busy which is i guess a good thing well and so also talking about the tv show stuff too and these guys so with merv griffin was this the time when jeopardy and wheel of fortune were going on air and you played on the pat sajak show as well right did you record on yeah. the original jeopardy theme and all of that as well uh yeah i did several times you know a lot of those themes they redo from time to time so they still use the same song but right now but it's a different recording right. uh but yeah i uh recorded you know i think I can't remember how many times we, if they, I can't remember if they recorded it every year or not, uh, but I know from time to time they redo that, but they've always used that same theme, which Merv wrote. So, he, yeah, when he made a fortune off of that, off that theme, and <laughs> it's a great theme, man. That's one of the best, most well-known songs in the world right yeah, there. The Jeopardy theme. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like the minute somebody asks a person a question in Western society, what does one person do if they take a lot of time? Exactly. And that that used to, sh- I used to get a check once in a while, some sort of reuse check where it's, it's so iconic. Like if there'd be a movie or something where uh, in the background on a television Jeopardy's on or something like that or somehow the theme song played that we'd get some kind of little check for That's it great. at that time you know but anyway it's a it's a different version of that now right. Merv did he did use a song of mine on another game show which was really nice uh that Wink Martindale uh was called Headline Chasers but it fortunately I mean unfortunately only lasted for one season otherwise right. that would have been really sweet <laughs> but, can you just give a rundown for our listeners of all the TV shows that you played in either the house band for or the themes for the Merv show, uh, as I mentioned, you know, was was really uh, uh, a neat thing, and and uh, Mort Lindsay, the musical director, used a lot of my music on there too. Those have been some of the things that have been really good for me financially. You know, it, the fact that, that he used, I had lots of songs always that were uh, relatable tunes and written out really well, so it's easy to throw them up there. Okay, bank of burn it down right there you know just being prepared that way so that and then uh later uh on the pat's ajax show tom scott was a musical director and terrific uh musical director and uh you know amazing musician as you know that was a really sweet band eric gale was in the band also hit it was an interesting band two saxes two keyboards 
and two guitars. <laughs> and uh, he had Dave Cause and himself. This, this was before Dave Cause had a record out. <laughs> and uh, he was probably about to launch that. And uh, uh, I got to be featured on that show once because I had, uh, when my High Heels record came out, it uh, it was on the billboard and and radio charts and all that kind of stuff. So they actually featured me on there one time as an actual guest out on the stage. Uh, yeah, out on out on the stage, you know, played one of my. It was an instru- instrumental song, but that was that was really fun. Of course, the band played it, so that was that was an incredible band. And as I said, Eric Gale, I got to got to meet him too. And then and then we did. Uh, uh, Tom Scott was also the musical director on a new version of the Carol Burnett show, and it only lasted maybe for about oh, I can't remember, maybe about eight months or something like that. It was really funny and good, but it was just kind of the wrong um, era, I guess, you know, type of show, I guess, sort of out of style at that time. But yeah, there was some real funny stuff. And and it was almost the same band as as the Sajak show. He took most of all the same guys over there. And and we did one of Tom's records right around that time, too, with the same band. Yeah, we should take a listen to you mentioned jam uh, high heels. So let's let's actually listen to a little clip of Jam Box. And I had after this just a couple other questions that lead us into the early '90s, and then we're going to flip over, and Perry and Will are going to are going to take it from there too. So here's this record here uh, is actually is a good example of when I was using a rack and big heavy distortion, uh, Vinnie Caliuta on drums. We cut this this whole thing is cut totally live except for the synth thing that we put and it's the only song on this record that has that kind of a synth uh thing on it like at the, at the beginning but uh two percu- two percussionists Luis Conte and Michael Fisher playing live with Vinny uh while we cut this track and this is jumping ahead a little bit because this is 1989 that this comes out right yes yeah that's a few years few, few years later yeah played all the way through it. it yeah <laughs> oh yeah dude yeah uh, that's a sound that's the sound right there man yeah so 
Um, <laughs> now, um, so by this time too, you had done the t doing the TV show stuff, and was this about the time that you uh, started working with George Benson and, and uh, Natalie also around this time? Yeah, at, uh, well, Natalie was a little bit later. Uh, uh, George, yeah, that would have been a, a, around the, around the time I started working with George, which would have been, uh, uh, I guess, in the late '80s or. Very late '80s into the early '90s, yeah. And maybe just a pause before before this too. I'm curious around this time. So you're doing records like this. You're doing the session work around TV, but you know you're a really fine jazz guitarist too. So were you hanging out at like Jimmy Smith's Supper Club and and Shelley's Manholm? Were you going to a lot of those gigs too and playing straight ahead also a lot during the week with a box, or were you primarily just really involved in a lot of this? Really more, I, I dare say fusion, but more like in this kind of style at this time. I was probably a little more involved in this kind of style at that at that time, but not. I, I mean, I always, I, I've got some real early stuff I recorded, uh, you know, way before anything we even talked about. That almost sounds like my jazz playing now on that L five <laughs> that I had. So I, I mean, I was playing like clean straight ahead stuff also, and and working on uh, playing jazz, you know, at the same time, even though we were. Uh, playing uh, you know a lot more stuff it was a little more fusion oriented as well you know so pretty stretched out some of the stuff we did the solos I and mean, it, it really was kind of before what they call smooth jazz it's not near smooth enough to be in the smooth jazz thing it's way too <laughs> raucous a lot of it you know it's as far as this solos and stretching out and all that sort of stuff but so i, I i've always been enjoyed doing all kinds of different stuff uh, you know i mean i've mostly been a jazz guy i guess but uh yeah i grew up playing a lot of different kinds of music so it was uh, cool i play mostly clean sound now unless i need to play something overdriven right and so back to also now getting back to our timeline here with meeting george benson and stuff when did you first meet him and get because we actually had interviewed earlier michael o'neill too and we talked to him yeah. about michael about playing in george's band for 30 years sure. oh, oh but, my god he's he's talking about logging some years with somebody yeah mike well yeah. mike had done that gig uh probably for about eight years before i did it i think fill up church before that and uh right. anyway so i knew i'd worked for a couple of artists uh that george's management company handled also randy crawford and a couple other people that i'd gone on tour with so so his office knew me and they were in la some of his band was uh a great deal of his band was from la a couple of guys from were from new york still uh lived there and uh let's see so i get a call from uh i i forgot if i got a call from the management company or, or someone or david garfield or uh uh who was the musical director at that time uh but anyway i knew all the i was kind of in the circle of the guys that did that you know uh, garfield and some of the musicians that were all also doing a you know fusion kind of thing but really you know high-end uh players and stuff so i just got a call and and mike o'neill i knew also because the flying jib gig i used to have mike o'neill sub if i was going on the road because i was also going out on the road with melissa manchester back in those days part of the time uh on tour and stuff so i'd have mike phil so i'd known mike for already for a while too so uh i actually never met george until i was at the first sound check uh mike came over to and we went over the tunes because i sang background as mike does also with george so he came over and and we got the cassette machines out that time 
he sang down the background vocal parts and you know and i basically just learned all the tunes off the records because uh, he didn't really have much charts there might have been a couple of tunes that had a few things sketched out or some chords but for the most part so and he, he had quite a few songs too a lot uh so I just uh, spent, you know, a couple weeks, two or three weeks or whatever it was, uh, shedding these tunes and learning. Some of them uh, were easy to learn. You know, they'd have just a, like a funk riff, like turn your love around in the background during most of it, you know, learning the background vocal parts. So first gig was in Portugal. So I met, met George on stage because he came from New York and, uh, <laughs> it all worked out good i got along great with george i think he really liked me a lot stanley banks liked me a lot who's the bass player it's been with him forever he said yeah that guy can play rhythm so you know he uh he, he liked me isn't <laughs> and, it uh, interesting too like you what you just mentioned is so important to understand that like so many guys like playing good rhythm guitar is what really gets us in our gigs, it gets us in proximity to guys like George in a way because we're playing rhythm. But the art of rhythm guitar, that really holding that down, you had had so much experience doing that in the house bands for the TV shows and doing so many sessions and stuff. And it's something that I, I struggle with some of my students to emphasize how important really learning solid rhythm is. As, yeah. it, as the great late Eddie Van Halen says, who just yeah. passed, of course, there was a quote yeah. that came out where he talked about, man, just go play bar gigs and play rhythm guitar all night because that's where the lead playing comes from, is from your rhythm playing, you know. It's, it's right so yeah and, and must have been fun to also get in was that your first opportunity on a gig like that to be singing backgrounds too because some of those tunes off of records like 2020 and in your eyes those have pretty complicated background vocals on they that gig. they do well I, I i grew up singing a lot to, uh but yeah it might have been uh might have been the first gig that i did that as much on that's for sure uh some of the gigs uh like melissa manchester always had background singers with her mm -hmm. a couple background singers so i think there might have been one song or something that i filled in a part of but not much with with that really Got it. because and then yeah. now just as we start kind of getting more to where we are in the early 90s and uh, steering this towards uh, your teaching it at usc yep. of course um so you you go on the road with george and you're coming back and you're starting to produce some of your own recordings and i can play a clip really quick from the album the road home from 1994.
Pat. Man. <laughs> that was right around that time I was about to leave George's group. Uh, George wrote some liner or a little blurb for the back of that uh, CD too. I think I think that came out in 1994. Man, it sounds so good, and I'm I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. You're such an important person in my life, musically, so many other ways. Um, so before we get into some stuff, I just wanted to ask, you know, when I hear you're playing, especially on that last track and over the years, you know, I can hear the influence of George Benson. I can hear the influence of cats like Pat Martino. You mentioned people like Barney Kessel and great Johnny Smith, all of the heroes, Wes. Um, when it comes to sort of getting that, more stylistic uh, approach of like fusion and more of like an electric solid body kind of sound or a 335. Who were some of the people you were looking up to throughout the 80s, people that were coming before you that were really kind of influencing you in that direction? Uh, well, uh, I guess probably Larry Carlton from my favorite, uh, at least one of them, because uh, mm -hmm. man, I saw some astounding nights at the Big Potato with him. Uh, <laughs> when I first moved to L.A., yeah. Jeff Picaro, Abe uh, on bass, and Greg Matheson, maybe, you know, it's this killer band. But uh, uh, Larry was, you know, he's kind of, I mean, heavy blues influence, too, you know. I mean, uh, maybe I, I would say I love Robin Ford also. I can't say that I, I grew up as, quite as much listening to him because we're probably about the same age uh, uh, Larry's maybe just a little bit older than me, uh, nine or ten years maybe, or something like that. So, uh, the you know the rock guys that I probably got the most from were you know Hendrix and Clapton and guys like that. Way yeah. more. I never was really a, a sh much of a shredder. You know, I mean, uh, just never worked on that style to be able to play is like Eddie Van Halen is amazing as he was. I wish I could play like that too, but uh, you know, only so much time in the day. So, uh, you know, the blues guys, blues guys are, were the biggest influence probably on my rock playing. I mean, Albert King uh, is my favorite and, uh, and, and the straight, you know, blues guys of the play straight, you know, basically three chord blues mostly. Yeah, I mean, that all adds up. I remember you talking about Albert King. I, I could certainly hear the influence of, of Clapton and, and Larry Carlton. Obviously, that all makes sense. And, you know, your, your style as a guitar player, it's, it's so refreshing. It's so amazing. You've been able to really blend uh, in such a beautiful way that sort of more fusion electric approach with the sort of tradition of jazz. And uh, you've done that for so many years. It's, it's so terrific. And kind of fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you were into the 90s here now, and, and you're part of the USC's uh, studio guitar program, studio jazz guitar program. And you guys built an incredible department uh, with some amazing faculty members there, attracting all kinds of students. And then 10 years later or so, John Story and I kind of show up. I was there in 2001, <laughs> he was there in 2002. And within a few years, uh, we're put into these guitar ensembles and I want the listeners to know that if it weren't for Mr. Pat Kelly here, none of this would be happening. <laughs> like, <laughs> it wouldn't have even this nope. podcast, 
the new West guitar group, none of that would be happening. Where, where would I be right this moment? <laughs> <laughs> Probably be uh, hanging out on a beach somewhere. I'm telling you, we we, we had we had some incredible fun. I, I mean, I could I could reflect a little bit on you. You probably have some questions you want to ask first, but boy, our oh, North, yeah. our North Texas trip and all that. Yeah. Man. Yeah, all that stuff was so instrumental, no pun intended, just in kind of forming uh, our identity as a group. But even prior to that, uh, I'm pretty sure, and John, you can back me up on this, but I'm pretty sure, Pat, that you came up with the name. I'm I, I know I did. New West. <laughs> I know I did. I, I told John this before. I remember the moment that I... Because we we had some hilarious names, we were trying yeah, to. As we think, did. <laughs> so, and, yeah, and, and most of them were dumb and on purpose. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I remember driving home, and I remember right where I was, getting ready to get off at the Coinga pa- Pass here, uh, yeah. kind of in that area, and and some something about New West came, and I I bet those guys would like that. So anyway, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it was just such an incredible gift you gave us of many gifts, but that name uh, really kind of represents our vibe and it, it kind of, you know, represents the landscape that we toured in for so many early years. Um, so it's it's really been so fundamental to who we are as a group. So first of all, thank you for that. Oh. Um, and then furthermore, just, you know, Pat, your way of sort of just planting the seed for us is really how I look at it. Um, you saw these four young players that were really determined and anxious and eager uh, but we didn't really know what we were doing. I mean, we had, you know, vague concepts, but not nothing really formed. But you had the, uh, just a, such a wonderful way of letting us kind of figure some things out on our own and then also giving us the direction we needed at the time. So in that sense, I feel like you just planted a seed for us and helped us grow in the most beautiful way. So thank you for wow. that, man, really. Well, well you uh, guys are have been a gift to me as well. See, you know, it's probably my greatest... Uh, triumph my greatest memory of being at usc without a without a doubt the fact that you guys are still still together and uh i it was a special group and uh i knew i didn't need to get too much in the way you know or we'll just end up being a thing where i'm trying to direct you know all the ensembles were starting to write their own music you guys were all so talented i i i always felt like i just need to let you guys i mean that's how you learn anyway from jumping into it and and uh you know figuring out what you need to figure out so it just uh but you were also man you were there for us in so many crucial ways i mean obviously we had some really silly moments some fun times the the north texas trip for the listeners that don't know pat i think just you took the initiative of just applying us to this uh, festival down in north texas i think you might have even fronted the money which we don't have to get into i'm sure you got paid back at least i hope you did and if you didn't I don't remember losing any money over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that Maybe I should cheap. make a claim. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't cheap. You know, you're, we were lucky to have the university behind us and, and you making all that possible for us. But I have to ask, what was going through your mind when you had the four of us out there trying to play these arrangements of things and we're going up against like rhythm sections and stuff? I mean... Did you think we really had any shot at what we were doing? Because we had no idea, you know. Yeah, I, I, of course I did. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it was an interesting thing. Yeah, uh, again, for the listeners, uh, uh, the New West uh, Guitar Quartet, it was called in, uh, right. was in the competition for the combo division, which 
had bass and drums and piano and saxes, whatever else, and most of the combos, you know, and here we are, just four guitarists, no bass, no drums, and and they take the prize for the combo division, and then uh, I'll let our listeners know that you got to perform in the big concert that night as the opening act for uh, John Pizzarelli, That's right. uh, who uh, was uh, the headliner that, that night in the, in the main show afterwards. So, yeah, it was quite a uh, cool thing i mean all the judges loved you guys and and it was unique uh and yeah they liked it yeah it was it was such a you know important moment for us it kind of cemented what we could do and the fact we could connect with an audience and then that led to a few gigs during the summers that led to more gigs and more gigs and well guys- what it led led to also was the fact that we got a grant at usc uh, right. if, which I'm sure you remember. The, I think they gave half of the money to some classical group, and then uh, and then you guys to help launch you guys as a group because uh, everybody was pretty excited about it down there at USC, and uh, and that so, yeah, that led us to make our first album, which you were the producer on, which you helped us kind of figure out, you know, uh, how we would put this together uh, in the studio and how we would listen back to it. And that's been such an incredible um, journey for us, you know, learning how to record this group. And furthermore, we had visits to your home studio, I remember, uh, where we would kind of work out some of the stuff that we would play. You would record it for us and we could listen back to it. And so there's just so many points along the way, and I'm, I'm not even covering nearly half of them that you just gave us a leg up when we needed it. And I think it's, you know, without that, we wouldn't have been touring. We wouldn't have had a lot of the individual success and we wouldn't have been able to keep our group going um, when Will Brown was able to join. And, you know, that's been a huge lift for us. He's really helped elevate it. So, so let me just try to ask this question to you um, as a teacher, you know, obviously I can understand. I have a teacher myself just seeing you know, having the gratification of seeing your students pursue what you've hoped them that what you've hoped that they're pursuing. But beyond that, you know, your philosophy as a teacher, can you talk a little bit about that just for some of our listeners and, and, you know, what it's meant to you over the years, you taught at USC for over 20 years. And um, I'd love to just know what you learned through that process, you know? Whoo, boy. I wish I had a more concrete philosophy. You know, I'm sort of sometimes a fly by the seat of the pants kind of guy. You know, I, I mean, I, I like there's there's some students, uh, private students that I felt like I helped out so much, uh, and they were in the place where they were right in my zone, and and some students that I had a bit of a hard time with probably, uh, you know, they especially some of the ones that were they're super advanced or already wanting to do a lot of other other things so i you know i'm big on the fundamentals and learning tunes uh also uh i've got a lot of concrete material on understanding uh how to apply arpeggios how to use the melodic minors uh harmony and 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 quite a few different things i've developed a lot of material mm-hmm. and uh and I, you know, I like for students to be able to pursue what they're interested in. Uh, some, uh, there were a lot of situations at USC, obviously, where we have uh, a list of tunes that we have to learn and that sort of thing, you know, and sometimes that was like pulling teeth occasionally with some of the people, which seemed 
kind of probably kind of funny to you guys because i mean learning like seven tunes or so in a semester is not a real big deal uh as far as the amount of tunes to learn uh so sometimes that would be like yeah, i'm going over these tunes too much uh try to get people to you know be able to be able to play the tunes well as somebody that that studied with you and has always been real influenced with you i i'd say that uh, what I noticed about your teaching, and I think a lot of other people did, was first of all, you you led from example, right? So the way you carried yourself uh, as a musician, as a man out on the scene, playing gigs, you were always really prepared. And that stuff, you know, trickled down to us. We saw that, you know. And then also in your teaching, there was sort of this nice combination of sort of hands-off, but also giving you just a little tidbit of wisdom when you really needed it. You know, like I remember you told me one time um, I was really struggling with my articulation being the way I wanted. And you said to me, you're like, you know, Perry, uh, the left hand is really important for the articulation. You really have to start, you know, uh, using and focusing more on your left hand in addition to just your right hand. And I don't think that anybody had really just flat out told that to me that way. And I still think about that this day wow. so you know you had this and you still do have this wonderful approach of not trying to be too overbearing but always kind of knowing when you need to get in there and say the right thing to somebody so to me that's the philosophy that i always uh, felt oh. we're developing and i'm sure a lot of other students that study with you would would agree well thanks for that appreciate yeah. it yeah pat it's good to see you again man yeah well I last saw you at Viva Cantina at like probably the last guitar night I was at. Um, was that my night? Was I playing? I think you were playing. Yeah. <laughs> I must it, not have been very memorable. Tyr Tyranny and, and her <laughs> and, now oh, yeah, husband yeah. showed up. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously you have a huge history with John and Perry and, and I've, you know, our the amount of times we've interacted are certainly not as many times as that, but I mean, everything they've said just reflects how I feel like how, how open and supportive and, uh, and mentoring you are. Um, I remember once I, I came over to your place and we hung and we played. I remember I walked up to your gate and, and you had just, uh, you had something just delivered to you. It was like a bluegrass real book. You remember that? <laughs> well, I, I know I have that book. I didn't remember that. It yeah, happened at that time. I, and I love, you know, it, it, that really ties into like how, how diverse you are with styles and genres. And I mean, I feel really close to you in that sense. Cause I kind of come from that same mindset. I, I grew up just kind of playing guitar and listening to all kinds of stuff. And yeah, I think that's, that's a real special thing that a lot of guitar players have in common when you just enjoy it, you know, it's all music one way or another. And, um, yeah. but man, just to, to hone in a little bit, um, about your, your home studio history and now, you know, home studios, whatever that means is, is yeah. a big part of kind of any musician's thing, yeah. but you, you were doing that, you know, even back in the early two thousands when it was probably less common just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I I started a long time ago uh, doing that. I uh, the first recording uh, multi-track recording system I had was a four-track TAC uh, cassette. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if anybody remembers the Portis Studio or not. Uh, and then I I had a four-track reel-to-reel uh, TAC and a, and then an eight-track TAC and then I had a sixteen-track Fostex 
machines. Some of the guys will remember some of these things. And then I had a, I had a Lin 9000 also, which I did a lot. I, I should have kept that thing because that had some cool usages still. But anyway, uh, and, then, and then it went to ADATs. Now, once it got to the ADAT situation, uh, there were some studios that were especially uh, library and jingle uh, companies and things that were starting to uh, let me put some stuff on on the recording from home, sequence some stuff. I was doing a little bit more keyboard sequencing at that time, which I hardly do anymore, wow. uh, and that sort of stuff. So that and adding some gu- guitar things because it was digital and you could send it over, even though it was you know so it would transfer mm-hmm. without you know adding anything. So then eventually you know we started moving to the you know, the kind of digital formats we're using now. So I've been doing it a long time. I've got some good microphones and preamps and uh, uh, it's, you know, it's not too hard to record a, a good guitar sound. If you've got good it, sound coming off of, off of it, you know, like mm-hmm. a, off an amp and so forth, it's easier than, than recording a drum set and that kind of thing where the room is a little bit more important and all that but it's it's really nice i mean even before the pandemic it was starting to be where i would get more uh calls to hey can you add a guitar part to this and send it back over to me you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing so i'm pretty well prepared for that i i've done uh, some of that here since uh you know during the pandemic and so forth too there's a few projects i've been working on so i'm curious since you you've come in i mean you've witnessed such a wide range of of the music industry you know what like course of like if you could zone in on one or two years did you really notice a huge turnover from like a lot of studio dates to less studio dates and more home recording um because i think that that's changed so much and and and, yeah uh that's a good question you know probably uh whatever time it was when we sort of transitioned out of ADATs and uh, I forgot what the, what was the one called that TAC made that was similar. Anyway, whatever that was, uh, when we started going to more all in the computer, you know, not using those uh, uh, probably at that. Yeah. I don't even know how to put exact date on that, but that seems like when it really started to be more uh, logical to do that because then I can email a track over to somebody, yeah. you know, it's not like what is on an ADAT or something like that. I'd send the tapes or the over to them, that kind of thing, you know? So. Yeah. For the listeners who've checked out new West guitar group for many years, we, we definitely, you're definitely the guy behind the, the curtain in a lot of ways for what we've done, Pat. And a lot of fun, a lot of fun memories back at SC with Diorio and hanging with Pat Matheny when he came to do the masterclass and you were just like in cloud nine during performance workshop, hearing us get up and just swing our butts off, you know? So it was some good memories, man. And, and now that you're retired from USC and doing your projects and stuff, can some of the listeners find you on these on Facebook and YouTube and stuff? Are you doing lessons too still, or are you just kind of hanging? And- I'd actually like to start doing some more lessons. I've kind of taken a break from it. Uh, and I, I've got zoom and everything now. So I, I kind of been working on a few of these other projects. And so I've been a little bit lazy about actually putting it out there. Uh, but, uh, that's something that I would really like to do. So, Anyone hears hears this and wants to check me out at patkelly.com, 
K-E-L-L-E-Y. Right. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, again, thank you for joining us on High Action. It's such a pleasure to have you, Pat. You're really just a, this is a feature for us because, again, we owe you so much. Um, we wouldn't be doing any of this mm-hmm. without you, man. And you continue to show us a great example of what it's like to be a real contemporary guitar player. And uh, I look forward to the day soon where we can hang and jam and play some tunes like we usually get to do, Pat. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, man. I love you guys. And uh, yeah, it's just been uh, my pleasure to have an involvement with your progression yeah, here. Well, thank yeah. you so yeah. much. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.